0: Welcome to Health Matters by Market Skip. I am your host, Dr. Medina Inojosa, and this is my co-host, Alyssa Johnson. And today, um, in a, this episode of Health Matters, we're. Extremely excited about this uh, guest that we have for your audience today. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about uh, who he is and what he does in a few minutes. But before we do that, Alisa, remind us, what is Health Matters? I would be happy to. Um, so the,
1: the mission of Health Matters is to promote health equity and um to discuss healthy habits and preventive health topics and any other relevant public health issue. Um, by approaching these topics with an equitable lens, we really hope to empower individuals, aka you listeners, to make informed decisions about your health.
0: Awesome. But in the last few episodes, or many, we have focused on COVID-19. So is this a COVID-19 podcast, Alisa? Mm,
1: right now it is. <laughs> it's the, like I say always, it's the most relevant health issue that is that is happening right now. So yes, yeah. and later we'll go on to explore more topics, but at the time, Yes. <laughs>
0: Every decision in our life and everything that we do right now is based and surrounded by something related to COVID. So for the next future, we will be focusing on COVID-19 related topics and evolve as the pandemic gets better. So, Alisa, um, can you please go ahead and introduce our guest?
1: Absolutely. So we are happy to uh, bring Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari to you guys today. Um, He's the CEO and Chief Medical Officer of E7 Health, a preventative health and wellness company supervised by board certified doctors with locations in Las Vegas and Chicago. So welcome, thank you for being here, Dr. Bakhtari. And um, if you could just hop in and share a little bit about your background and also about E7 Health.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yeah, so um, I'm originally an internist, pulmonary critical care doctor, uh, but for the past decade or so, we, you know, we have been at the helm of E7 Health, which was originally actually called the Vaccine Center. So we are a <clears throat> clinic and a company that specializes mainly in adult vaccinations. We've been doing essentially continuously since 1994. We get involved in all types of preventative health care as, revol- as it involves uh, vaccinations for adults, whether it's for travel, student health employee health for different types of physicals so this is our sort of bread and butter and as i always joke we were sort of like a COVID company before COVID happened this is what we were doing
1: awesome i mean yeah that is uh COVID is dare i say a perfect fit for your company right now and not not a perfect fit for anybody but yeah. you guys were well equipped to handle it certainly and how about yourself uh where are you from originally what's your your background
2: yeah, I uh, grew up in the Midwest, in Chicago, and then for my education, I kind of traveled. I was at Case Western for Case Western Reserve for college and Ohio State for, for medical school, and Northwestern for residency, UCLA for fellowship. So I was one of these that um, just followed the path for, for my education and went to the best places I, I could find for what I wanted to do, and so traveled west and eventually wound up in Southern Nevada. Wow. Right,
0: I, I'm pretty sure the weather had something to do with it. Uh, maybe Alisa and I from from Minnesota can relate can relate to that. Yeah, yeah well,
1: Chicago what? weather compared to um, Las Vegas area weather. I think that I can yeah. see the yeah, the competitiveness.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, Although, yeah, you know, there's a certain charm to the Midwest that I think most of us miss.
0: I, I Chicago hot dogs, so yeah, good. Many, <laughs> many, many things. So, yeah. Dr. Bhaktari. Uh, I'm extremely delighted uh, for the opportunity to have us have you in the show today. Um you and I share a lot of in common interest around medicine especially in the preventative aspect, right? Uh, and I think it's been a long year or more yes. than a year now we're <laughs> in the middle of, of April we're, we're we're we've been resilient and we've joined as communities uh, we have to thank our healthcare heroes and everybody working um, in the sidelines and in the front lines to to help mitigate the pandemic there is a horizon there there is an answer there is there's many things many that have evolved i i like to start this interview with asking you a very broad question which is after a year of experience from someone with a uh, pulmonary, you know, uh, background, an expert in the field in vaccines. Uh is the vaccine the answer to the pandemic? Is this yeah. vaccine?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, long term, of course. Yeah, I think that it, it is the answer. You know, I mean, you know, we've we're able to get uh, a great handle on measles, mumps, rubella, and you know, other you know, vaccine-related illnesses and. Yeah, it, it long term, especially a virus like the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is, you know, it's a upper respiratory virus. It's coronaviruses have been common. They're not going away. And yeah, I think vaccination is going to be part of the big solution to, to get to herd immunity and, you know, sort of get back to normal. So uh, I don't think it's going to be 2019 anytime soon. But yeah, I think it's got to be a big part of it because there's just no other way. The cost of not doing it would be pretty tragic if, if we if it just ran its course.
1: So considering the importance of vaccination and uh, ending the pandemic or bringing it towards a close, um, could you talk about the different vaccines and um, how they compare what what is available in the US and and what are, what's the difference between them?
2: Yeah, great question. <clears throat> well, the, the first two that were approved uh, by the FDA for emergency use authorization you know, was the Moderna and the Pfizer uh, vaccine, which uses mRNA technology, which we can talk about a little bit. The uh, Johnson & Johnson, which was more, more, uh, more recently approved, uh, uses a viral vector, a common cold virus. But at the end of the day, both technologies involve taking genetic code and using some sort of vehicle to get that genetic code into your shoulders. And then your body takes that genetic code and that genetic code in this case is for the spike protein uh, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And your body then produces it. You yourself actually produce the spike proteins. Um, And then your body says, oh, these spike proteins are foreign and you create antibodies towards it. And so when you are finally exposed to the virus, you're protected. You know, it's interesting, uh, the mRNA vaccine it has been around for a, a while, ten years or so at least, and it was sitting in the laboratory. And I, I my own personal views, nobody had the guts to pull it out and create a vaccine from it because there's some there would have been inherent resistance to having genetic material you know, poked into your shoulder. I think there would have been a lot of social barriers to overcome. But of course, in many ways, the the, the pandemic, you know, put a gun to our head and we said, "Oh, let's try that." So. So the whole idea with the mRNA vaccine is we take a little piece of the genetic code of the spike protein from the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, just that little bit, and we put it in a soap bubble or a lipid particle, and then we inject it into you, and that soap bubble gets absorbed into your cells, and that strand of mRNA, which is sort of like a mirror image of DNA genetic code, is then your body uses it to actually make the spike protein. So that is actually a revolutionary new way of creating a vaccine, never done before. And then, of course, the vector method, which was tried with Ebola and other, you know, which was even tried with HIV, by the way, the vector method where you, you took a cold virus and put the DNA of the spike protein in the cold virus and injected that to your arm. That was a little more traditional, although that's had... The, the the vector method has also has somewhat of a checkered past of not being successful in the past but that was at least <clears throat> known technology it's, and so it's a little ironic that the mrna technology which everyone was so afraid of like in december is now considered like maybe the safer thing but yeah so that's where how we got to today.
0: <laughs> so, so I think this makes me prompt a, a very important question based on on the expertise you just outlined. Because for months, more than a year, we have, you know, let's say months, we have gotten the, the we have to battle the argument of this vaccine was right. And I think that's extremely, <clears throat> extremely frequent that we get that question. Uh, extremely frequent that we have to promote the fact that it wasn't uh, rushed. And you have just outlined uh, several um, reasons why it was not rushed. Uh, and it's now the, the, the new technology is actually proven to to be a little bit more effective and and good. So uh, just straight out question, was this yeah. vaccine rushed? Was any of the three are, that are available rushed at all? or Or what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I mean, to, honestly, to answer that question, I'd like to answer another question, if you don't mind.
0: And That's that right. other
2: question is, why are vaccines inherently, you know, cause resistance in certain groups? I mean, let's put aside the COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, you you know, you know, certain parents don't want their kids to get vaccines. And, you know, whether we talked about the anti-vaxxers and, or, or that whole genre of people, you know, there's no... There's, you know, Facebook groups of people who don't want their children to get vaccines and what have you. So the question, the bigger question for a guy who's been doing vaccines for over a decade, is why? What is it about vaccines that people inherently may have an issue with? Because, you know, last I checked, there is no Facebook group of moms saying don't ever give my kids antibiotics as a class of drugs, or there is no Facebook group or public, you know, group that is. Now, there's no anti-chemotherapy groups or anti-antibiotic groups. So because a lot of those actually have even more side effects than than vaccines. So what is it about vaccines that lends itself to a certain percentage of the population in being inherently resistant to it? And I think that really comes down to the fact that vaccines as a class are the only class of if, what I call them drugs, although I don't think. In many ways, they're not really drugs, um, but you know they're the only class that the government forces you to get in certain situations. Like you want to send your kid to second grade or seventh grade, you got to get this. Yeah. Gotta... And anytime the government steps in and says you got to do something, you know, no nobody is forcing moms to give antibiotics to their kids, mm-hmm. right? And so you know, I find that very interesting because as a class, so when COVID vaccine came along, you almost knew. That there would be a group, that yeah, and that some of the you know some of the concerns are legitimate. But aside from that, the non-legitimate concerns, that there's nothing you can say that would pacify certain groups when it comes to COVID vaccine or any vaccine. Sometimes, so I think inherently, you know, vaccines have that challenge coming out of the gate. Even from a public health point of view, you're going to have groups of people. But I think the other thing to really keep in mind is you know unlike antibiotics and unlike chemotherapy vaccines really should be the opposite it's probably one of the most natural things you can do because when we give a vaccine metaphorically what we're doing is we're taking the bug putting it in a blender and injecting the toes and you know feed into you and your body thinks it's seeing the whole virus and you naturally create antibodies towards it so if I was living in a vacuum, I would think vaccines would be the most well-received things out of all the classes because it's not really a chemical. We're, we're just trying to introduce you know, the elbow and the toe of the virus to you mm-hmm. and fool your body. So I can't think of anything that's more natural.
1: No, absolutely. Yeah. And one that I actually hear a lot from um, a public health health standpoint, when I'm talking to individuals who have, for example, had COVID before, they say, Well, why should I get vaccinated? I already had COVID. Or they say, Oh, well, I'll just get sick with COVID and then I'll have immunity to it. So what would what would the answer be to that? I I already know the answer, but you know, to share with individuals that might have that
2: excuse. Yeah. I mean for people who've who've already had COVID, I mean theoretically you could make a case and not getting the vaccine, but the problem is we don't know if the immunity from having the virus is going to be longer than from having the vaccine. And, and I think that's really the general health strategy, because you're, you're just betting that the immunity from having COVID is going to last this long versus, you know, mm-hmm. for, from actually getting the vaccine. So I think that's where that's coming from, where it's better just to get both and, and then you don't have to figure out which one's going to last longer. Or to just get the vaccine yeah. and not to
1: get COVID.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. Not that, get it in the first place. Well, that, that goes to my other little story where people say, Well, you know, I, I really don't want to uh I really don't want to get the vaccine. And the way I look at it is statistically, let's just do the math. You know, we have what 35 million documented case of COVID in the United States, right? That's 35 million. That's documented. Those are people who've had a positive test. Uh, you know, many, many experts think there's a multiple of that who got COVID and we don't have a positive test for. And whether no matter what number you believe, whether you think the multiple is two or four or six, that roughly puts about 100 to 150 million Americans that have already gotten COVID. which you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of the population already have been have already met the virus. So it's not like you're not going to meet the virus if you don't get the vaccine. Statistically, I would imagine you've got a pretty high chance of meeting this virus one way or another. So the question is: do you want to meet the spike protein with the virus right behind it? Or you want to meet the spike protein, you know, without the virus? And that's where the vaccine argument should come in. You should get, you should want to get the spike protein without the whole virus behind it. I mean though because there is no there is no option C. If you assume statistically, if you don't get the vaccine, you got a 50-50 chance or better of getting the full virus. So which one would you rather have? And I think that's what I tell patients, which one would you rather have?
0: And and and, and with the vaccine, of course you get it the added protection, right? Because it numbers for all vaccines show that you, that you protect from, from getting COVID with a high efficacy, but the most important number, at least I, need, I might sound a, as a broken record to our audience by now, but I say the most important number across the three vaccines is the nearly 100% protection of you getting a, a severe disease, hospitalized or death. And if you compare any of the frequencies of the side effects that we can we can talk about it in a minute. Yeah. You're going to see that you rather have some of it compared to the likelihood of you getting meet the virus, as you're saying, in the other capacity, and the likelihood of you dying or having a severe severe disease Brand. with mm-hmm. long term effects that we don't have. We're not sure what they're going to be because it's one year only, um, and and we have to wait and see.
1: Yeah, and I mean it's like imagine you're prepping your house for a hurricane and you can storm proof it yourself, which Mm -hmm. you're not trained to do. And you might, you know, have a disaster once the hurricane gets there, or you could hire somebody that's skilled in storm proofing to storm proof your house to make sure that you're okay. Once the hurricane comes, I mean, there's this vaccine is, is created with that sole purpose.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. If you really look at the big picture The decision is pretty obvious. Um, I think think you're hurting yourself if you're not, but go ahead.
0: Sorry. Dr. Bagdari, so you basically described a very good rationale against vaccine hesitancy, right? Um, But going to that subject of hesitancy, and knowing your experience with vaccines in the past, mm-hmm. is has this been frequent with other diseases or, or the vaccines that protect against other diseases? Can you identify any common denominator beyond the ones you told us? Um, in terms of what? Maybe, are people hesitant in your field to get the yellow fever vaccine or get the flu shot or get any other vaccine? There? Yeah,
2: no, we see it all the time. You know, we see, uh, you know, people saying, well, you know, I'll just be careful or, you know, like if people are traveling to, like you mentioned yellow fever to endemic areas of the world where yellow fever is a problem. They're like, Oh, uh, I'll just, you know, drink the water, drink bottled water and be careful. And what have you, you know, mosquitoes don't really know, you know, that you're careful or not. I mean, if you get bitten, you get bitten. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think that hesitancy is there. And I think there is a connotation that I think, which I really would like to dispel that vaccines are medications, or in essence, you know, are foreign stuff. Uh, you know, vaccine manufacturers in the last 20, 30 years have removed a lot of the, you know, antigens that used to go into making a vaccine. They're much more pure. They've gotten rid of many, many of the older stuff that, you know, when I was a kid, you know, the measles shot I got, what have you. And so, you know, it's very rare to have any significant side effects. It's, it's still possible, but when you compare it to the risk of anesthesia, the risk of, you know, having a procedure done, having an appendectomy, you know, I think I think, uh, I think it, it's very, very safe. But I think there is this connotation that someone's injecting medication into me and I don't want medication. And, and it's not really medication. I, I tell patients over and over it's for the most part, in essence, metaphorically, you're getting body parts of the virus you don't want to get.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think that this has any, um, you know, this hesitancy for vaccination, if it has anything to do with the pain associated with the injection itself? I mean, I think that sounds like a very like childish response, but I, I ask myself, you know, yeah. taking a pill, there's not really much of a a pain associated with it.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Especially you see that obviously in pediatrics and certain adults. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, nobody wants to do. You know, it's almost like the difference between. Brushing your teeth and flossing, you know, I think, one of the reasons people don't floss off. It's just the pain associated with it. So, uh, yeah, I, I could certainly see that uh, that nobody wants to kind of roll up their sleeve and know they're going to get a needle. So, yeah, that probably makes sense. Okay. But I think, I, I think this this mandating anything will always get a, a certain group of people to be against it. I mean, you you, mm-hmm. you can mandate, you know, going into a library and, and probably get a, a, a group of people that would. Be to
0: her. Yeah, that, that's an extremely good thought. And, and thank you f- for sharing that Alisa is w- has been able to share across her or interactions, um, her experience, she unfortunately got COVID early in the pandemic and had a lot of symptoms very you know not a hospitalized but was able to to stay at home but i'll I'll let let her tell me a little bit about that but she also was vaccinated against and got sentenced from that too so tell me tell alisa take the opportunity to share that again just for people to to know what you what would you rather yeah
1: and i think it's important to share too because i speak really highly of the vaccine but I can say on my days after my two doses, I was like cursing the name of the vaccine for like, <laughs> for a moment or two, because it, it's uncomfortable. Um, I, I suppose, uh, <sighs> I always say it's uncomfortable, but it wasn't as bad as having COVID. Um, when I got sick, um, I, I don't know what the cause of, of you know, but I didn't have any, um, contact with somebody who had a confirmed case or anything, but, um, I got sick in October and I was just knocked off my feet. I was on the couch for about two weeks. Um, no taste, no smell, you know, upset stomach, just sweating like constantly. It was extremely uncomfortable. Um, and then a, a bit of fatigue for, um, a bit of fatigue too for the last, for the month about following. So, you know, really just for a healthy young individual, it was, it was pretty devastating for a while. Um, and I've, I've been, fortunate to be able to recover well. But when I did get my doses in, um, in February, yeah, I mean, I had low grade fevers, pain, trouble sleeping, um, just really uncomfortable. But what I've got to say is that it's absolutely, um, I I wouldn't want to risk getting sick with COVID again, because if for a young person healthy, active, with no underlying conditions. If I was affected like that, um, it's a very unpredictable virus. I would have never expected to have had such a uncomfortable case of COVID. Uh, well, not to mention, I forgot to mention the cough, which is, I don't even, I think my brain blocked it out because it's very, very painful. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that um, while we talk about vaccination, we have to keep it grounded and say, you know what, we do have these immune responses that can be uncomfortable, but it shows that your body is working and that it's having the effect that it needs to have. Um, And with that, you know, uh, going from these normal um, responses that my body had to the vaccine, if we could talk a little bit about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and some of the kind of abnormal, um, very rare effects that they've been seeing in a few cases. Um, If you just wanted to talk a little bit about Johnson & Johnson as a vaccine and and what's been happening?
2: Yeah, so Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, like I said, was a, a vector vaccine where they use a cold virus, an adenovirus, and they insert the spike protein DNA into the virus and then inject it into you. <clears throat> that was a pause, as you know, recently because of six reported cases of uh, clotting, mainly, uh, you know, cerebral uh, venous sinus thrombosis, which is a special type of blood clot in the veins that drain your brain, Um, and one person died. Uh, They were all women between the ages of 18 and 48. Um, You know, one required surgery and one one still critically ill, and so, yes, very unfortunate side effects, and so the FDA and the CDC made the decision to pause it, and part of the rationale for the pause is that this kind of clotting requires a different medication than we normally use for clotting we normally use uh, typically heparin uh, for blood clots and in this case because this type of clot caused by the va- if it is caused by the vaccine kind of replicates heparin induced clots they're rare forms of <clears throat> heparin induced thrombocytopenia or hit and where antibodies are created towards the platelets, which are clotting factors. And we think supposedly maybe that in rare cases, the vaccine is producing these antibodies, which are activating platelets and also creating antibodies towards platelets. And so heparin would be contraindicated and, you know, another class of uh, anticoagulants, thrombin inhibitor uh, anticoagulants is indicated. So the FDA and the CDC said, you know, Part of the reason we're pausing is to let medical doctors know not to give heparin in someone who's had the vaccine and show up, shows up with a blood clot to use the appropriate, uh, not your first line blood thinner, but use the second one, if you want to call it that. So that was the rationale for it. I think, you know, what what we have to consider is, you know, what is the, you know, public health costs of the pause versus... Obviously, we don't want people to be treated incorrectly. Uh, And, you know, were there other cases that weren't reported that they wanted to pause and look at? And so I think I think put together, that was their rationale for pausing.
1: So right now, as they're in this pause, um, are there studies that that are taking place to see what maybe were some underlying conditions that these individuals had or if there was a certain medication that they were taking?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they've already looked at a lot of that. I think only one woman, as far as I recall, was on on oral contraceptives, which would be obviously a big risk factor. Uh, but for whatever reason it's, you know, hitting women. Uh, like I said, between the ages of 18 and, and 48. And it, and it happens really about 6 to 13 days <clears throat> after they got the vaccine. And a lot of that mimics some of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine that happened in Europe. And why it affects women more, we don't know. We know women traditionally, if you believe this is an uh, auto, autoimmune phenomenon where you create antibodies to yourself, <clears throat> I guess, you know, something that is you like your own platelets. We know women have higher incidence of rheumatoid arthritis and, and lupus and what have you. So women, there's something about women's immune system that makes them, uh, you know, unusually um, have unusual risk for autoimmune diseases that create antibodies against oneself. So we, the data is really out and out. I mean, we don't have it. I'm speculating. But I think that's where it's probably going to go. For whatever reason, women's immune system, you know, when these rare, rare things happen, it predominantly happens to women much more than men.
0: This this is uh, very, very interesting uh, to know. Is there any other clinical pattern that we can rely on? Um, Anything else at the moment beyond the ages of the woman? Um, that they're mainly uh, affecting women so far um that we can they we can identify uh and the history of having the vaccine um in the prior three weeks anything else that could help us identify okay yeah and I you know
2: I went through the information that was released there's nothing else that you know is pretty obvious. I think the only other thing to really talk about is the sheer low numbers I mean you know we're talking about you know, six cases out of 7 million shots in the United States. So statistically, you know, it's, you know, it's just one in 2 million or what have you, uh, or one in a million. And if you then look at the risk of getting COVID and getting the same clots if you get it, you know, your risk of getting roughly these kind of clots if you get COVID is, you know, a Multiple of maybe two to five to ten times the risk. So it's not like if you get COVID, you're not at risk for essentially some of the same clots, and uh, and also you know other things like you know like getting pregnant will give you significantly higher risk. You know, pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. Just getting pregnant is an issue, Um, and if you look at women who take oral birth control. You know, they have a certain risk factor to get some of these clots. And they're certainly in the same range, if not higher than the risk. And, you know, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we don't stop people from getting pregnant or, or going on birth control. So it's, it's a risk that, yes, of course, it's unfortunate. And, you know, We don't want anyone to, to, to get a blood clot. <clears throat> but, uh, but you have to then weigh the benefit of the Johnson & Johnson I, I certainly think if we had no other vaccine, making this pause would have been very, very tough. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. what made this pause somewhat, you know, tenable is that we did have these other options. And I think more than likely, you know, I'll be really surprised when they, you know, take off the pause that, you know, they're still going to allow the the Johnson and Johnson vaccine to be given to certainly anyone above 50 and maybe men under 50 and and maybe just restricted not to give it to women in that age group. I'm speculating, but more than likely, I think that's what we're going to see from the FDA and CDC.
1: Yeah. And that was going to be my next question. I mean, as a a woman in that age group, um, I, I've already been vaccinated, but what can I tell other young women who maybe they're on oral contraceptives or even um, pregnant women, You know, what can we tell them? Um, certainly Johnson & Johnson isn't available, but yeah, what's your, what would be your message then?
2: Well, I mean, so far there, you know, there's no scientific data that says that mRNA vaccines have the same issue. Uh, So, you know, definitely that that alternative is there. Like, you know, I I, from everything I'm seeing, the supply is not that big of an issue right now for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. So I would say, uh, you know, if you have if you're in that age group and you have those concerns, um, then that might be a better route to go. At least we have choices.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I think um, over the last few months, uh, we have been telling people that one, the vaccine was not rushed and was heavily tested. And I and I, and I think we can agree on that. Um, and the other thing that we have been saying is that there's this surveillance going on and the surveillance was there for a reason and this is one of the reasons, right? Uh, There's something abnormal, even though it's one, less than one in a million or more than one in a million chances uh, of, of, you know, the prevalence of this. That's the level of surveillance that we're having. So a little bit of it makes me feel some Comfort, comfort when I talk to people. We're watching for possible things that we couldn't, couldn't have caught during uh, the clinical trials and the other observation periods, and this is good. The other reasoning for the, for the pause is, uh, as Dr. Bactari was mentioning, is to allow for the reporting of um, additional cases that will otherwise will not be associated. And the most important is to actually create awareness, telling clinicians uh, uh, all over the place, if there's a history of the Johnson & Johnson vaccination and some signs and symptoms of a blood clot, then we should consider this in in our treatment strategy and treat accordingly. So there's a good rationale for that. We expect some changes, or we expect it to go back into into the market um, or into 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 the offerings. The most important thing for listeners right now is to understand that regardless of the pause, if you're not vaccinated, you should be looking to get a schedule. A scheduling. Uh, today, we reached a milestone with many, many more places you're being available to. Vaccines have been available to you or to people of all ages. So in reality, you should be looking for that appointment, looking for that place, figuring out what is the quickest way to get your um Vaccination. As we always say, the best vaccine is the one that's in your shoulder, and that's the one that we should uh, be looking for.
2: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, I think, I think even when you see, you know, the one fatality in the six cases of clot, you know, what we we've had a, more than a half a million deaths from COVID nineteen. Let's say we didn't rush these vaccines, quote unquote, rush them, whatever you want to say, and waited another half a year i mean losing another half million people you know because it, you know these adverse small side effects which are going to happen probably no matter what um it's it's a, it's just a looking at which way are you saving lives more and you know we know, we know anesthesia saves lives because we can do surgery to save people's lives we know people will die from anesthesia we don't withhold anesthesia because we know on balance, we're going to save more lives than and we might impact. So, you know, this whole idea, of rush or no rush. I mean, the reality is, you have a half a million people dying in almost half a year. Yeah, you you, you got to make a strong case to say, well, let's let's look at it for another six months. Well, how many more people are going to die while we take that, you know, one little extra level of uh, comfort?
0: Yeah, and. I- one thing that I wanted to add is, as most most of the things that we do in, in medicine when we talk to our patients is that shared decision. We do our best as clinicians to provide our patients with all the necessary information for them to make the decision. It is not expected for us to say, hey, Mr. Johnson, this is what you're going to get today and this is what we're going to do. It's supposed to be a shared decision, we're supposed to be providing the options, and we do something very important, which is show the risk and weigh the benefits, which uh, right now is what we're trying to do uh, with this show and trying to give you all the information uh, that you need for 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 your decision, for your informed decision. Again, you should be in the computer, in the phone, getting an appointment. That's extremely important right now.
1: Or asking someone to help you get an appointment in case you're having troubles with it. Not (laughs) everybody's a computer whiz and that's okay.
0: And even trying to help your grandparents or your parents help an appointment because we have talked repeatedly how important it is for you to help uh, the less tech savvy around you uh to get a shot or yeah. if you're not tech savvy find a tech savvy cousin or, her, or kid or someone to help you out
1: yeah and actually mother's day is around the corner um, um getting mom a vaccine would be a beautiful mother's day gift yeah um yeah and i guess going back to um we've been talking about blood clots a lot what are symptoms of blood clots
2: yeah a lot of it has to do with where the blood clot is so we talked about the cerebral venous uh, 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 clots or thrombosis. And those can present in traditional ways of like seizures, signs of a stroke where you have weakness on one side, headache, change in vision. Uh, those would be the more the neurological symptoms. So if you have any of those, especially in the one to two week period after the vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that's something they consider. You can also get clots in your abdomen. Uh, So there have been some reported cases also with the AstraZeneca vaccine, clots in the abdomen and also clots in the lung. The lung would be more shortness of breath. Uh, The uh, abdomen one would be typical, you know, abdominal pain, GI issues and what have you. So uh, it's important to know that theoretically you can get the clots anywhere, but the ones in, in this case were mainly the brain venous clots. And those would be more neurological, like I said.
1: And I know that we've talked about how um, women on oral contraceptives or women that are pregnant they're more likely to get blood clots, or they have a higher possibility of developing them. Are there any other groups that are that are more um, have more of a
2: disposition to blood clots? You know, uh, just in general, you know, people with cancers or people who uh, are immobilized, who, who are bedridden. And and certain malignancies and cancers can certainly put you in a hypercoagulable state. So, those groups would also have to be worried.
1: And is there anything that people can do to prevent blood clots? Any tips or tricks?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would say normally yes, but these blood clots occur in uh, the veins draining your brain. So, uh, obviously, that's going to be a little uh, trickier. But yeah, and honestly, they're so, in these cases, they're so rare that you know, having millions of people do something to prevent one person, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure how effective it would be. But, yeah, th- that's going to be tough for these kind of blood clots. Yep.
0: And, again, that's a case where the benefit always is. Right now there's no data for us to tell you that, and that's probably um... – the way to go. Uh, well, Dr. Bakhtari, this has been a delightful podcast. I cannot tell you how excited we are to have all your expertise uh, with us today. I think our, our listeners will be extremely informed um, and they will benefit a lot for, for the knowledge you have provided today. Uh, that
1: being said, um, Dr. Bakhtari, do you have any closing notes or comments that you would like to just end
2: with? Yeah, I mean, I think what what I really stress to people is that, um, you know, unlike a risk of, you know, getting anesthesia, where if it doesn't turn out well, you know, you're talking about impacting yourself, whatever. So that's, you're you're willing to take the benefit. But I think most people with the COVID vaccine need to understand they're not only getting the benefit, but if they can protect a loved one or someone who might catch it from them. So it's really, you're also doing... On some level of community service or service to the people you love. I I think, you know, when you make that internal decision of you know going on birth control or not, those are risks you're taking. But when you decide not to get vaccinated, you're passing that risk theoretically on to others. So just keep that in mind when you're deciding whether to get it or not. If it's if you don't think, hey, I'm willing to live with it, if I get it, I get it, that's one thing. It's another thing to, to say okay, I get it, I get it, but then I might give it to someone I love or someone I care deeply about and factor that into your decision-making when you're trying to assess the risk-benefit.
0: That is wonderful. Well, Dr. Bactari, again, uh, thank you for being with us today. And Alisa, thank you uh, again for co-hosting. This has been uh, Health Matters by MarketScale. um, And thank you so much for listening.